you know, companies are in different positions. So like some companies might have like a lot of money and they're like, you know, if you're a huge enterprise, you might be, this is kind of like a blip for you in the near term. And you're still thinking about like what your overall like two-year goals look like or something. Um, if you are a, you know, a smaller, like a funded startup who's all their revenue just dried up and their runway just shortened from two years to three months, you know, like leaning into the paid curve might not really work out very well for you if mm. you just need to be alive in six months. And so I think, you know, for anyone that can, I would, I think Nick's advice is great. Like, you know, lean into the curve as much as you can, because there actually is a bunch of opportunity available right now. A ton of people are online. A ton of people suddenly have business problems they need to address very quickly. <laughs> so like you have, uh, you know, if you're selling a solution to those, like this is a good time to market. So I think there's, there's something to be said for that. Curious to know what industry leading marketers are looking to achieve in the ever evolving digital landscape. The How Agencies Thrive podcast by StackAdapt is dedicated to helping the new breed of forward-thinking, savvy, lean, and mean marketers win in the rapidly evolving digital landscape. Time to thrive. Hello, everybody. My name is Vitaly Pichersky, and I'm the host of this podcast. Today, we have a really great episode for you. Business-to-business companies are forced to rapidly reinvent how they go to market. Obviously, with lockdowns due to COVID-19, it means that B2B companies can do business or attend conferences in person, which affects how they generate leads. And aside from this fact, how business decision makers buy has already been rapidly evolving over the last few years. Increasingly, there are more stakeholders involved. Often, software is adopted first by the line employees and then being pushed up to the management rather than the other way around, being bought by the management and pushed to the line employees. And with increased competition, buyers just do so much more research before they buy. In this episode, Alex MacArthur from StackAdapt sat down with Digital Reach Agency, who work with many software and B2B companies to discuss strategies companies can take to grow despite these new market dynamics. What I found really cool is that DRA is an entirely virtual company already. So they first share some really great insights based on their own experience into how to adapt to the new norm going forward and incorporate remote work. And then the rest of the episode, they discuss account-based marketing, attribution methodologies, and how to build holistic marketing funnel strategy. I can't be more excited for this episode. And now it's time to welcome Nick and Andrew from Digital Reach Agency. All right. Uh, hey, everyone. My name is Nick Renard. I'm the director of paid media here at Digital Reach Agency. I manage a team of strategists and techs to help companies with their paid media marketing strategies. Uh, we focus primarily uh, with B2B clients, the platforms that we utilize the most, uh, but certainly not limited to, but uh, Google, uh, LinkedIn ads. And then we also do a lot through programmatic and DSP technology. And yeah. Cool. Um, hey, everyone. My name is Andrew Seidman. Uh, I'm the co-founder and head of operations for Digital Reach. I uh, have a fair number of different responsibilities, but one of my key focuses is on account-based marketing, uh, both from a MarTech stack perspective, as well as um, from a strategic perspective. So um, yeah, looking forward to talking about that, how uh, programmatic affects uh, ABM and, and a bunch more. So happy to be here. Hey, I'm uh, Alex MacArthur. Uh, I'm an account director at StackAdapt. I've been there for around two years. 
you know, I come from a background of mobile programmatic and publisher direct kind of de- desktop stuff. I guess partway through the career, I wanted to merge my two passions, which was advertising and technology. So a DSP that's omni-channel uh, covering all areas of the web made the most sense. And then I've been fortunate enough to uh, be able to work with Nick and Andrew for some time now. And uh, they've been teaching me lots about how programmatic can be tied into uh, ABM strategies. So, uh, I mean, elephant in the room, uh, COVID's been a hot topic uh, as of late. I mean, I've been stuck at home uh, quarantining. We've seen so much of an impact uh, economically on small businesses, large brick and mortar operations. Uh, financial markets obviously have been affected by that and some emotional response. Uh, I mean, we're here today to talk about B2B advertising, especially when it comes to you know programmatic and uh, funnel uh, position. In terms of SaaS and tech in the B2B realm, those are in a pretty unique position. Uh, now, I know you guys at DRA, you guys focus primarily on, on B2B uh, and SaaS and tech make up a, a big portion of that. So in, ter- in times of uncertainty like we have right now, like what's your perspective on B2B marketing? Yeah, I think there are, in terms of how COVID has affected businesses, I think that uh, it's easy to, to look at that binarily in that uh, there's sort of like two categories. There are some people that are really devastated by what happened. And uh, we've already seen a lot of uh, small business and retail and stuff like that uh, just straight up go under right away. There are, when you mentioned that the certain companies like SaaS and tech and whatnot are a little less affected, I think it's a dangerous statement to say that they're not affected. I mean, uh, it's it's easy to look at digital reach, for example, and say, oh, they were already a remote company. They work with a lot of B2B. It has uh, a little direct effect on them, on them, but there is a large indirect effect on us in how that affects our clients and their customers as well. So there's really no one that isn't affected by this. I think one of the important things to think about in terms of the impact of COVID and how we are reacting to it is um, even if you are in an industry that is quote unquote fine or you know not not devastated by what happened, you're still going to have to make some moves with you uh, strategically to adapt to what has happened. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, a lot's changed and it'd be kind of short-sighted to say that business can carry on as usual. But uh, I mean, with a, a pivot in strategy and maybe a refinement of messaging, I, I think there's still an opportunity for success. Um, in terms of uh, like working remotely, I know you guys have been remote for so long now, always uh, just working from home. Um, what's that been like? And have you noticed like your clients reaching out for tips on how to kind of handle uh, the current situation? Like, yeah, it's interesting that you uh, right at right when the COVID thing happened. I know as it started ramping up, uh, we started making announcements with our team. Uh, Andrew did a really good job of sort of like helping keep our team educated about what was going on. As uh, we talked about, digital reach was already remote. We have been full time remote for uh, almost a decade now. Forever. Um, so since we started. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Since since the dawn of DRA. So in uh, there, we released a blog post, I know, about uh, trying to help uh, clients that were making the transition. I think that kind of going back to what you mentioned previously about how is that affecting other companies, I do think that even of the companies that or the industries that are not 
as affected or not devastated by COVID, that the fact that their whole teams are going to work from home now, I think that's one of the biggest transitions that people are going to have to adapt to because some people are very good at uh, being able to do that. Uh, other people really struggle with the the levels of like self-discipline and whatnot it takes to just be self-driven enough to, to work 40-hour weeks without being in an office setting. Uh, yeah, I mean, I've, I've definitely experienced uh, a bit of a Groundhog Day kind of situation. It's hard to get used to the change in routine. Uh, but, you know, now that I'm settling into a groove, it's it's definitely been a lot easier to stay motivated and focused. Yeah. Uh, and, and you guys are just pros at that. So, Andrew, I know you were sort of like monitoring the whole COVID-19, uh, giving updates and whatnot to our team and sort of keeping up with that. Uh, I don't know if you have anything you want to add in there. Yeah, for sure. Um, first, to answer Alex's question of our clients and things reaching out for tips, I wish they did more often. We have like a huge wealth of experience. There's actually some great documentation out there uh, from Zapier, which has been an all remote company from their uh, beginning as well, I think, online. Like that's a whole guide they wrote to how to uh, run a remote company. So I think that's, uh, I wish that they you know came to us for more advice because we have so much experience doing this. There's a whole bunch of technologies that uh, companies can leverage from, like we use Asana for task management. Obviously, Zoom is uh, stock has like tripled or quadrupled since this whole thing started. Um, there's a ton of tech stack stuff that you can do to to um, make this stuff work. Uh, and I, I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of organizations didn't uh, return from the work from home thing fully to offices after they build this infrastructure. Because in a lot of ways, work from home is more efficient. You, know, you don't have the overhead of large offices. You have uh, actually, one thing I find valuable is you have a written record of everything. So, like, you know, every communication request documented uh, in Asana or in Slack or whatever it might be, um, you can find everything super easily. So, you actually have a lot less information loss. Uh, there's a little bit less dynamism in working remotely. You know, you can sort of like get some energy from being in a room with someone. Um, but the thing that I would note, just in addition from this, um, for what Nick said is that in our hiring over the years, we've really seen a pretty binary situation uh, in terms of working uh, remotely or working from home that like some people really thrive in that circumstance and other people don't. Um, and it's it's been very, very binary. So uh, we usually look for people who have like some kind of really significant reason to want to work from home, like a family or a pet or, you know, like a hobby or traveling or whatever passion, it might be that they yeah. love doing. Yeah, some kind of a passion. And so that kind of passion, I think, helps sort of uh, settle people in there. So we we thought a lot about what it means to work from home. So it's kind of crazy that everyone else is getting forced onto the, band, on the, the bandwagon. I think drilling into that even just sort of like, I don't know, on a psychological level too, in terms of why that is, because I've spent a lot of time in terms of, there have been some people that I've had to let go from my team where I didn't, I didn't let them go because they weren't competent and they weren't, weren't good at their job. It really was that when you put them behind a desk where no one was micromanaging them, their productivity's productivity levels tanked. And I think that part of how the sort of normal progression of how we grow up in society where even from a very young age you have teachers and coaches and parents and bosses and managers and etc that are constantly pressuring us to act when we're not acting uh, i think that 
that habit is going to affect a lot of companies that are trying to make that transition to work from home in a negative way. And going back to what I said about adaptability, I think that's where managers really need to come in and implement a lot of the things that Andrew is mentioning of like having a, a task system that's intuitive and stuff like that uh, to be able to adapt to the new metagame where the level that you can micromanage people is significantly lower. Yeah, it's it's definitely a new meta. It's a great term. Um, so, I mean, I guess from like a B2B marketer's standpoint, obviously productivity at the workplace is directly intertwined with uh, performance you would get from like a B2B campaign. People need to be uh, pushing through like discovery and, and adoption of new technologies in order for, you know, B2B marketing campaigns to kind of convert. So they need to be, you know, online taking actions. Are you guys finding that, uh, this shift in uh, uh, work style is affecting uh, the performance of campaigns? It's a little early to really tell the long-term effect. Like we've been running in quarantine for about a month and uh, the results are, as many things with lots of data, are a little bit murky at this point. Um, campaigns, or certain clients have actually performed like way outperformed past history. So mm-hmm. like we've done, uh, and there's some reasons for this, I think like number one is um, there's a ton of engagement surrounding COVID as a subject itself. So like we're here talking about it on a podcast, like we're running webinars yeah. about it. Um, everyone is basically online trying to learn about how this big black swan event is affecting their business. And so all of the COVID related campaigns that we've done have like had unbelievable results um, in terms of getting people to think about how your problem or your, your product rather might solve their COVID related problems. And so I think there's something really valuable there. On the other hand, a lot of our clients exist in industries that are getting hammered by this whole thing. Like it doesn't matter how effective your marketing is if you sell airplane tickets. Or, you know, restaurant food, or we don't really work with a lot of like restaurants, but like we work with some travel oriented B2B companies or things like that. If anything, I view it as kind of a great opportunity for a lot of uh, accounts to basically prove out definitively that digital campaigns outperform non-digital ones, um, which I think is like likely to be true in most cases and has been something digital marketers have been harping on forever. But but yeah, I would say it's a little too hard to say at the moment if it's like definitively like a terrible thing or a good thing. It's probably more like, you know, by criteria, it depends. But um, people are definitely spending a lot more time online than they ever have been before. So uh, it can't be all a loss. Yeah, no, I mean, I think it'd be short-sighted to go either way on that question. Uh, in terms of like a benefit or a loss, uh, but it's definitely an opportunity to really prove out digital because I know that uh, so many strategy pivots are happening within these organizations that have uh, a 360 kind of plan for their their B2B strategies. And uh, the channel that is active and growing right now is digital. People are spending so much time online. I mean, I know on our side, uh, we've noticed a giant spike in inventory and a reduction in, in CPC, CPM, uh, and that's based on just there being more available inventory, supply and demand. There's uh, more out there and you're competing against less. Yeah, I would echo what Andrew said on the uh, the kind of the, the analogy that I would draw there is that when we run campaigns for clients, let's say we're running a campaign that's supposed to spend $10,000 a month. 
if you ask me three days after the campaign launches, what's the performance like? How are things doing? Yeah. What's good? What's bad? It's just too early to tell. Um, we're going to need to let it run for a little bit. We're going to need to adapt to some of the metrics that we see. I think that's a similar analogy to what we're dealing with COVID that we're sort of making some predictions with the information that we have, but we will have to see how this pans out and, and, and adapt from there. One thing that I wanted to, this is sort of a tangent on your question, but kind of relating back to what we were talking about in terms of like managing your teams. I do think that one of the big shifts that is happening with this crisis is that people in general are not spending as much like social time with each other. Uh, that much is obvious. One of the things that I think is important, um, I know that we value it very highly foundationally. Uh, culture is a huge thing for us. And so I think that it may sound silly, but I think setting up like even like uh, game nights with your team, um, we do something that we call fam chats where we randomly pair people with other people to get them to just chat for 30 minutes casually about their lives and what's going on and stuff like that. I think that that void that people are having socially with not being able to go out and whatnot is sort of an opportunity for us as managers to uh, set up events like that to help our team uh, feel that like, you know, our company is sort of uh, part of filling the gap for them on that. So I think that's something that uh, you can help enhance your the morale of your team, the culture of your team by implementing little things like those even though, you know, that's sort of outside the spectrum of like a B2B marketing strategy or something like that. So that that's as a manager of like some of the things that I focus on. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely have experienced this weird gray area between Sunday and Mondays. Typically, I get into the office on Mondays and I get that rush of I'm at work. It's time to go. Like, let's get this ball rolling. But now there's not that social kind of stimulation of getting in there and seeing everyone after the weekend. So it's harder to pick up and go on Mondays. So I mean, social kind of scheduled time like that between employees can definitely help boost productivity. That's, that's yeah, really you know, like when you were a little kid and you were playing video games all day and your parents would yell at you. Yeah. It's like now yeah. we're forced into that situation. <laughs> so now, <laughs> now we have to find ways to like make ourselves go outside yeah. as adults. No. But it's difficult to do. <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> Definitely have experience with that. <laughs> I mean, I like that you mentioned analogies before because, I mean, the purpose of this this podcast is uh, to really touch on, you know, ABM or account-based marketing, uh, attribution measurement and, and funnel structuring. Uh, you've always had this great analogy uh, that talks about, you know, the shape of a funnel relating to sports. I was wondering if you could drop that on us. Uh, yeah, this actually came up originally. Like, I think I was in a, a weekly lecture and I just started rambling about it. And then it, we, it just kind of stuck. But uh, I was talking about um, a the difference between a good sort of like holistic marketing strategy versus uh, some of the common pitfalls and where people have like failed holistic marketing strategies. I, I related it to... Uh, a soccer game and it could really be any sport it could be lacrosse or whatever but if you look at a little kid soccer game versus an adult soccer game in a little kid soccer game everyone chases the ball and it's a huge cluster around the ball whereas in an adult game it's much more like zone defense where everyone's kind of like playing their role on the field we have um i would say that in the little kid soccer game the analogy that i drew there was that there are a lot of uh, directors of marketing or marketing managers, whatever, that get pressures from their CEOs 
to say, I need more opportunities in my pipeline. So um, a lot of times they react fearfully that if they don't pump more opportunities immediately that they're going to get fired. So what they do is they line up all of their campaigns, they sort them by which one has the best cost per opportunity, and then they invest all of their money into that one campaign that has the best cost per opportunity. And that's a problem because when you're doing that, you're essentially clustering. It's it's like the little kid soccer game where you're clustering all of your resources into that that one part of the funnel. But a successful holistic marketing strategy is not about just doing one thing. It's not there's it's not there's not one secret sauce element that you invest all of your resources into it and that's what makes it successful. It really is like a team game where everyone sort of has to play their zone. You have top funnel assets uh, that are focused on awareness and and getting you know engagement stuff like that. You have mid funnel stuff that incorporates for marketing and nurture. Uh, the sales team gets involved as you start getting closer to bottom funnel and, and closing it, and you start using more aggressive asks like free trials and uh, and demo requests and stuff like that, rather than trying to serve them free content like you would in top of funnel. So that was sort of the analogy that we drew of of. Um, the little kid soccer game versus the adult soccer game. Yeah, I can definitely relate to that. Just playing beer league hockey for so many years, you get a lot of out of position stuff. And when that starts happening, you start losing the game. Uh, Andrew, I mean, we were talking uh, earlier this week and you really mentioned some interesting stuff about you know account funnels and, and lead funnels. Mm-hmm. I was wondering, like, how is DRA tackling this topic and kind of bridging that knowledge gap with uh, B2B marketers? Yeah, so the the kind of initial frame shift uh, that is, um, I think, fundamental to account-based marketing um, is that sort of traditionally, you can see this in the way that like Salesforce or other CRMs are built, they're all built around a lead model. Like the leads are the individual people that you're trying to to make relationships with. And then ideally you progress from those leads into contacts, the contacts work at an account, and then you kind of like work your way from the bottom up. In uh, in account-based marketing, you're actually thinking about things from the top down. Like you're thinking about what, what's important to the account on the whole. Who are the different players in that account? How does like a, an account make choices rather than a, an individual make choices? Um, ultimately, you still will be interacting with individuals. Like accounts and people are all part of the, the same ecosystem there. But um, when we set up like an account-based funnel, for example, um, we're looking at a lot of those qualifications on the account level. So we're rolling up scores from the individual leads to like create an account score. We're using that account score to uh, create like an account life cycle. So often if you have like a lead life cycle, it's doing something like, you know, going from prospect to lead to MQL, SQL, uh, opportunity, customer, evangelist. In accounts, you can have the exact same thing. You can have an account that goes from being a uh, an unengaged account, like a prospect account, to a engaged account, to a marketing qualified account, to a sales qualified account, and so forth, which basically kind of reflects those same things as being like the sum, the accumulation of their parts. And so I think um, w- this sort of can relate to even in, in a more complex way to or sophisticated way to what Nick is saying, which is like, Within an account, you might actually have people uh, at varying stages. So you might have some people who are really like in the information gathering phase. You have some people who are, who are like even not even aware that they have a problem or that you have a solution for their problem. Uh, and then you may have other people who are already champions who are trying to like buy your product now. And so rather than um, trying to, you know, act like these are all independent actors, you sort of attack the account on the whole, but fit the content that you need to those individual experiences so that 
kind of like progress the whole account through the funnel as one big unit. Uh, and that's, that's usually the strategy that I try to report on in ABM is to say like our KPI is how are the, the accounts themselves moving through the account funnel rather than like how are the leads moving through it, if that makes sense. Yeah, that, that does make sense. Um, I mean, uh, Nick, in terms of like uh, activating or executing on some of the overarching strategies that Andrew works uh, to kind of build out a plan for, like, what are some tactics that uh, you've been using to kind of engage uh, accounts as a whole? And Andrew, I mean, if there's anything on your side as well, just uh, just unique kind of strategies, tactics, data types, like what's that looking like for you guys? Yeah. I mean, Nick, I think you should jump in and talk just about paid for a second because paid is like the most dynamic and flexible of yes. all of these uh, mechanisms. And then I can talk a little bit about some of the other other mediums that we use. Yeah, I think I think a lot of the um, Andrew, what you were talking about there are great questions for people to be asking themselves about their own company uh, or their own sales funnel in terms of uh, I think a lot of people start looking for agencies to like manage their Google ad spend or something like that without even knowing the answers to the questions of like, how are leads being nurtured from one stage to another? Asking those kinds of questions and figuring that out and understanding um, sort of where the bottlenecks are in your funnel is extremely important. Um, if you figure out that all, you know, maybe you're pumping a ton of leads into your funnel from a, a campaign that you're running on Google or LinkedIn or whatever, but you don't have anything in place to sort of catch those leads as they're going down into the mid funnel and you're having, you know, massive drops in conversion rates and stuff like that. That's something that you need to identify. And I think that um, you can kind of see that in the structure of if you look at like the uh, the lifespan of digital reach. When we first started, we first started as just a paid media company and we slowly started branching out into uh, doing SEO and web dev and design and marketing automation and CRO and all this other stuff. And the reason we did that was because we realized exactly that, that to nurture all the way through the funnel in these long sales cycles for you know B2B, SaaS tech, et cetera, um, we really do need to be able to address uh, those issues on a lot of different levels. So everyone knows about uh, Google search, that's a big focus of ours. We invest a lot of resources into Google search. So that that's something that is definitely a, a strategy that we utilize a lot. Remarketing in a lot of different forms on a lot of different platforms is also a strategy that we implement a lot. I would consider both Google search and remarketing to be very low hanging fruit. So if you are just starting to ask those questions about your company, maybe you're, um, sort of revamping your marketing or onboarding new directors of demand gen and stuff like that for your company. I think that those are th those are good questions to sort of ask yourself. Um, and if you're re restructuring your campaigns that you're using, um, those are good places to start. Uh, stuff that's been working lately for us really well. Uh, so one of the pain points that we've had with a lot of clients is landing pages. Landing pages take a uh, they take good designers and not everybody really has access to those. It also, if you want to hire a good designer, that's typically pretty expensive. Uh, and also creating it and getting the content for it and everything is, is generally a relatively time consuming process. So uh, LinkedIn recently 
rolled out with uh, what they call lead gen forms. And I know they're rolling out on Google and some other platforms as well. And what those are is instead of uh, clicking a link and going straight to a landing page, you know, where you insert your URL, the form just pops up on the page itself where you can submit your information and you can capture the lead that way. It's much, it's much simpler. Now with paid media, the typical best practice for a landing page is to put the call to action right in the person's face as they're landing on the page. That form submission needs to be above the fold. I'm sure a lot of people already kind of know the best practices mm -hmm. of landing pages. They have ex experience with it. This is sort of like the quintessence of that, where it's like, that's literally all it is, is the form. There are some complications with uh, that we've ran into with being able to attribute those forms into people's CRMs. It is doable, but since it's relatively new technology and the way, depending on the CRM that you're using, uh, there can be complications there. But we have seen uh, in terms of being able to capture leads, uh, lead gen forms have been something that we've been having extreme success lately. Andrew, I know on uh, on some of the accounts I've been working with you on, we've we've been running those for clients, and the the conversion rates are insane. I don't I don't know if you have anything you want to add into that. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I think lead gen forms are like at the forefront of effective new technology, especially in alleviating the bandwidth issues that a lot of companies have to get their web development teams up and running and make great landing pages and then manage them and tie them into the form handlers and the part marketing automation side of things. And there's a lot going on that a LinkedIn lead form or another uh, Google lead form, whatever can alleviate, um, which I think is like super, it's super amazing as well as just making it a better user experience for the client or for the prospect. Like if they just want to access a piece of information from you, now they can just get it, you know, right on their platform that they utilize already um, rather than otherwise. There is sort of one downside to it. There's a little bit of a, a lower threshold of qualification. Yeah. Um, you know, when somebody comes to, you know, goes to your site, fills out the form there, like they tend to be, they often are going to be using their like business email address, whereas like somebody on LinkedIn is often using their Gmail address or something like that. So there is some qualification there, but I think it's kind of hard to argue with the lead quantity and the low cost per acquisition. Um, are pretty strong on those things. So I definitely say that's part of it. Um, I would also just note outside of paid or paid media, it's been interesting during COVID-19 how it's affected our ability to do like multi-channel uh, marketing campaigns. So, you know, in the past you would include something like direct mail. Well, direct mail, no one's in the office. Like you can't really mail something to an office where no one is and expect it to actually get to where it's going. There's, uh, you know, a field marketing is like a huge component. Like one of the, some of our clients have been dumping a ton of extra money into paid media now because they, you know, can't run their multi-million dollar uh, conference that they were going to run, or they can't send their their field marketing and sales teams out to these places. So, you know, with those reduction of possible outlets of marketing touches, basically, um, you really see it focused more on this array of email paid to a degree organic, but organic is a lot harder to target in the near term. Like you mm -hmm. can build organic, but you can't really be like, oh, we're going to drive 10,000 organic leads, you know, for this campaign that we're going to run for three weeks. So, you know, you can't, you can do like organic long run, but really like paid email and social are like kind of the only ways that you can, you know, COVID land that you can like quickly uh, connect with your prospects. And so I think those like, 
between investing in those things, if you need to keep the leads coming, uh, and then investing, honestly, using this time as for like architectural purposes, there's a ton of architecture problems that prevent people from having good ABM or good multi-channel campaigns, um, like problems on the website, uh, like problems on the, you know, within the marketing automation or CRM or your data set, or like, is your data clean? Or when was the last time you actually sat down and looked at your content gaps and so forth? So there's a ton of architectural things I think people can use this time to improve on. But from a campaign perspective, yeah, paid is kind of like, uh, got to carry a lot of the load here, that plus like email and social. Yeah, I mean, email is, is going to be huge uh, in the near future and is uh, already quite an effective tactic. I mean, for people that have built up large CRM files that contain like thousands, hundreds of thousands of like segmented emails uh, that are just like broken out into exactly who they want to target, leveraging first party email targeting, uh, whether it's direct email or through like uh, syncing and matching with audience graphs to make them targetable uh, through programmatic uh, channels. That's something that's incredibly valuable to a marketer and just owning your own data uh, from that sense is is a strategy that a lot of people hopefully are working on getting in place now uh, or just working on uh, collecting as much as they can. I, I know there's just been a huge shift in uh, things you mentioned like uh, field or, or conference marketing and as well any sort of like direct mail, like mailing stuff to actual addresses. Uh, those channels, I guess, are effectively gone until people are back in the offense or they're allowing conferences to happen again. I mean, I know on our side, uh, over at StackDev, some of the IP or ISP internet service provider targeting that we've been doing for uh, corporate uh, IPs uh, just isn't as effective right now. People are just not there. Uh, and then as well, like physical conference, digital support. So like kind of eye in the sky, uh, targeting these large B2B conferences with uh, either geofencing or geocapturing has been like a historical tactic that's worked really well. Fortunately, I mean, a lot of the geo-capturing that we've done is still available and, and uh, advertisers can still use those stored uh, segments based on historical presence at a conference. But the geofencing aspect is gone because there's no there's no actual conference happening. Uh, so it's, it's definitely an interesting shift uh, in terms of like uh, keeping things going. Yeah, I think... Uh, the, the channels you mentioned uh, earlier are going to be extremely effective during this time. Yeah, and I think that's a, gr- a great example of sort of w- when we're talking about adapting your marketing strategy, that that's a great, you asked the question about like what's working right now, uh, talking about what's not working as well. That's a good example of like, okay, so let's say we are investing X amount of dollars per month into a strategy like that. How are we flexing those dollars and where are we flexing those dollars into other strategies? I do think that what I have seen is I think a lot of people uh, with their marketing strategies, since um, there's been a big scare with COVID, a lot of people are just tightening up and cutting those entirely. Mm. I think that if you are in the spectrum of companies that is not devastated by COVID, that I would encourage people to, rather than just cut all of your expenses and tighten up, uh, at least have the discussion of like, strategically, how could we reallocate those funds into another sort of like next level meta strategy uh, with our marketing? I do think that's a healthy thing to consider uh, rather than just kind of reacting out of fear and just... uh, trying to sort of hoard your money. Yeah, I, I mean, I know that uh, some of the, like the premier B2B data providers are, are likely rejoicing right now. A lot of people 
who are having to pivot away from those traditional physical uh, or even IP based strategies um, are uh, are going to be looking towards like a Bombora or a Dun and Bradstreet to use business record data to reach people uh, on the devices that they've taken home because they're no longer at the office. Uh, so, I mean, there's definitely still tactics available. It's just up to marketers to sit down, kind of do a, I guess, even like a spot analysis of, of what's possible for them right now. And if there's an opportunity for them to uh, continue to see success during the, like the pandemic times, uh, break it all down and, and spell it out and look to where you can spend and deliver intelligently, basically. Yeah, I will. I will say just uh, quickly that you know companies are in different positions. So like some companies might have like a lot of money, and they're like you know if you're a huge enterprise, you might be this is kind of like a blip for you in the near term, and you're still thinking about like what your overall like two year goals look like or something. Um, if you are a you know a smaller like a funded startup whose all their revenue just dried up and their runway just shortened from two years to three months, you know like leaning into the paid curve might not really work out very well for you if mm. you just need to be alive in six months. And so I think, you know, for anyone that can, I would, I think Nick's advice is great. Like, you know, lean into the curve as much as you can, because there actually is a bunch of opportunity available right now. A ton of people are online. A ton of people suddenly have business problems they need to address very quickly. <laughs> so like you have, uh, you know, if you're selling a solution to those, like this is a good time to market. So I think there's, there's something to be said for that, but uh, it really, it really happens on like a, on kind of like a case by case basis. And then also like from the, uh, you, you mentioned kind of IP targeting. I really do feel like right now is the time for like device targeting to really like surge to the forefront. Mm-hmm. You know, somebody like Bombora, who is, has an amazing intent service, intent data service, like is relying a lot on, you know, how uh, on people to be filling out forms from known IPs. And when you lose the known IP factor, um, people, you have to get creative in this kind of targeting. So now I'm, I am confident the market is pretty flexible and very sharp and very uh, intelligent as to solve some of these things. But um, it's definitely kind of a, at least in the near term, kind of a new horizon for how we, you know, provide the best possible targeting. That said, it's still like any kind of like really high level programmatic targeting is still going to provide like way better targeting than any sort of like untargeted or medium targeted like classic Google display. So there's kind of a spectrum here. And generally I'd recommend like if you have the money to spend right now, you probably should spend it because everyone's online looking for, looking for how can I solve my business problem in the age of COVID? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, absolutely. In, in terms of uh, spending intelligently, like if you can do it, definitely do it. I mean, once let's say like, there's no playbook right now, there's no set guideline that you can put in place that's going to blanket cover your business. It, it's definitely up to uh, marketers and, and people like yourselves to help marketers uh, understand how they have the best chance at success. But let's say you've you've carved out a pretty good plan and you know, it starts to to take, get traction and start working. Um, in terms of like measuring and attribution, like beyond just like a, a cookie based conversion from a lead gen form, like what type of uh, like attribution or, or marketing technologies uh, are you guys utilizing to uh, sift through like the bulk data and understand how performance is occurring at like an account level, at a quality level? Like, what's that look like for you guys? 
Yeah, I'll, I'll jump in for that one. First of all, there's lots of different like attribution methodologies that you can utilize to um, to get a picture here. Um, I, I tend to think that like the di- the distance between zero and one is much greater than the distance between one and two, which is to say that like having no functional attribution is so much worse than you know having like let's say first and last touch uh, relative to the difference between having first and last versus like robust multi touch. So um, I would say for for most people, if you look at this and you're like, I don't have a super clear picture of like, let's say the key touches of my closed one or my opportunity pipeline, um, then just getting anything installed is such a victory that it's worth it. Um, it's kind of no matter what level you are at in the marketing department, like if you're on the director level and you're trying to report this, like this is the report you need. If you're like a tactician trying to you know, optimize an account, like being able to see what actually generates pipeline is way more valuable than being able to see what generates leads. And so, um, you know, there's a, there's a lot to be said for just getting any kind of attribution. But if you are at that level already and you're looking sort of into the future, real credit is way better applied via multi-touch systems like you can get from Visible or Lean Data or many other providers. But the idea of that being like, you know, okay, let's say that like Nick said before about the soccer field analogy, right? Uh, if you are just focused entirely on the bottom of the funnel, like you might just be looking for these like converting touches, you might miss the fact that, you know, a huge percentage of the overall touches, you know, occurred via organic, right? And it's just like, oh, really organic is driving 70% of your valuable touches. And it's just like this last one that comes in through paid. Um, you get a clearer picture of, of how that works. Um, and then I ideally just like roll this up to the account level. And be able to say, what were the key touches as the account? Like, what caused the account to go from being an, an unengaged account to an engaged one? What caused them to go from to an MQ, you know, MQA, uh, marketing qualified account, to like an SQA? And be able to say, okay, these key transition moments align with these touches. Like, that's kind of the the overall attribution plan, if that makes sense. But it's not easy to set up. Like, I kind of I noted before, you really need some architecture in your automation and in your data to, to be able to actually report on that kind of thing. Do you have any sort of like, rec- do you have any recommendations of someone who maybe feels like their company is at a zero and trying to go from zero to one of how to address or implement that? Yeah. I mean, like first and foremost, like find yourself uh, a CRM and or marketing automation admin who knows this stuff. Um, I'd say probably the most common problem that you get on attribution actually stems deeper and happens because um, people assume that Salesforce or, you know, Marketo or Pardot or whatever are like plug and play software that you can just like sit down in and get started with no experience or with minimal experience. It's actually kind of amazing. People will spend like $50,000 on Marketo and then give it to their intern. It's, It's like very kind of crazy. And so just finding somebody that actually understands how these systems work, the actual setup of an attribution system isn't very hard if you're somebody with any experience in it. Like you literally you click some buttons, you install a piece of software that you either buy from, you know, a, a provider like Visible or that you uh you get from like a an agency like ours. We have a, a, our own attribution software. But like you know, you you basically have somebody who knows how to set this up. Once you have that piece of code, it's literally just like you you create some fields in your you know CRM, and then you plug in this code, you run a test, and it's good to go. But if you don't have that pre-existing expertise, it's really hard. So yeah, my advice for if you don't have the attribution you need is you, you probably just need to bite the bullet and get some professional help. 
Like if your car, you know, started making a squealing noise and smoking, like if you're not a mechanic yourself, like you probably need to take it to a mechanic who knows what's going on. And I think that that is true of, of like all of these technically challenging things, including getting attribution set up. Yeah, I, I, from personal experience, like I obviously I use Salesforce and uh, beyond like some of the, the reports that have been provided to me, building out some of my own custom reporting dashboards has been a lot of Google searching uh, on like very deep threads within forums to understand the right formulas that go into place. Uh, and in terms of like your guys's proprietary like attribution script, like I know you guys have developed one. I, I don't obviously know what comprises it. And I wouldn't expect you guys to explain that. But in terms of like uh, building that, like how is it like an ongoing process? Like how long have you guys been doing that for? Uh, it's definitely unique that you guys have your own script. We've been doing it for many years. Um, it actually was like super core to our business. The most common thing you get in B2B is just like, okay, but how do I show that this actually makes money? And if you can't answer that question, then you're pretty likely to get fired. And you can't answer that question without attribution. So uh, in B2B, in B2C, you can just look in Google Analytics and see, hey, like we ran these paid campaigns, they led to this much money, but it's more abstract in B2B. Like Nick can run, you know, Nick's team can run like a, a beautiful campaign that, you know, creates like hundreds of form submissions at a very cheap rate or whatever it is, thousands. And somebody might still be like, where's the money? You know what I mean? Um, or they might, let's say, have gotten five opportunities this quarter and they were expecting 10 and they're like, this is total garbage. But then like, if you have attribution, you look and you see that all five came from paid. And it's just like, oh, well, maybe paid is actually the only thing that's working for you. So a sort of mission critical part of our business to get that up and running. And actually, it's pretty easy to explain how it works. Basically, what happens is like when someone submits a form on your site, they you know enter like some fields, right? They enter their name, their email address, their company, their title. Um, but when they arrive on the site, Google and a few other cookies on your browser are tracking a bunch of information. Like that's where analytics is getting its info. Yeah. Is like you know what page did I come from and how did I get here and so forth. And we basically just take all that information and then add it to the form in a hidden field. So when they hit enter, not only do they submit their email, they submit the medium that they came from, but they never have to see that or it doesn't disrupt the, the flow of their user experience. And then all that info just comes attached with the lead into the CRM. So you can see, oh, there was a touch here from this person that came from this medium. And so like, if we want to see how our Stack Adapt campaigns are doing on a client, we can just look and see this based on the UTM criteria. Like, oh, this is a Stack Adapt form submission that came through at this time via this page, via that campaign. And then we can sort of track it all the way through to get not only just like a how much, how many leads or what's our cost per lead, but also like what's our value per lead or what's our value per opportunity. Cause we can see exactly how many, how many dollars we won based off of a stack adapt influence, for example. So having that kind of transparency, I think is like, it's fundamental to what Nick does, fundamental to what our, our SEO and other teams do. I think it's just like a critical piece of the puzzle. Absolutely. Extremely important. It's, I mean, what's the point of collecting all this information if you're not set up to be able to like uh, analyze it, right? So. Uh, in terms of like the MarTech piece, it sounds like you guys have that uh, uh, covered from like a zero to one standpoint and then one to two. Uh, what what would really, I mean, you mentioned multi-touch, like what's involved in one to two? Yes, yeah, so you can think about in the example I just gave, right? Like the first and last touch are basically being saved as like these fields on uh, on like a specific person. So like, oh, Andrew showed up and he started off here and then his most recent one was there and that's all the information you get. 
there's like when you install some like more advanced software and get it running, you basically get to see each individual touch that gets saved there in kind of like its own custom module that the uh, like, let's say like lean data, for example, is going to track for you. So in this case, you can get a sense of, you could run like a by touch report. So you can basically say like, show me all of the organic touches, no matter who, who did them. You could, I think the most valuable thing for me is to be able to, when you get that data is to see like, Hey, like assume like an even valued touch model, like where do the majority of like, what percentage of my touches come from each medium? Um, and be able to get a sense from that. There's like literally an uh, infinite number of possible models that you can use. The probably like 10 really popular ones for doing this kind of thing. Some of them like really heavily weight first or last. I think like it's probably like what's right to do is something like a slightly higher weight towards probably like the highest weight towards first touch. And then like a collection of kind of like middling values, like an average middle value. And then like a little bit more for the last touch, but like it doesn't really matter that much. The idea being to see you know, what are the ratios of how often people are engaging with different types of mediums? And so you can really kind of see where your investment is best suited. And ideally, like, um, you know, even down to like the keyword level, in fact, like uh, these keywords are driving the majority of our touches and then filter that data back to the rest of your team, have your salespeople know that kind of thing. And then you get into like the ABM world where everything has to be totally aligned. But, uh, but yeah, I think that just with that kind of data, you can do really cool stuff. Yeah, it sounds like a, an imp- incredibly complex, uh, I guess, balance of information and, and strategies all kind of intertwining into one. I mean, you're you're talking about like uh, MQLs, opportunities, SQLs. Uh, what type of scoring, like how does scoring occur? And sorry to keep picking your brain on this. I, your knowledge is just so far advanced compared to mine. Uh, no, uh, I I think that all of this is extremely relevant to all of the clients that we work with. So, and I know Andrew, this is very much your expertise. I believe that you were actually involved in writing that original script that we use. For yeah. So you're a good candidate for talking about yeah, this. For sure. And actually I'll tie scoring into kind of what Nick does as well. Cause I think that it's underutilized in a lot of ways. So scoring, you know, ideally on a, on a lead or a prospect level um, is designed to show you engagement, right? It's designed to show you quality or value of a lead. I think uh, there's all these like default modules in the um, marketing automation platforms like HubSpot or, or Pardot, whatever. They have these like you know out of the box scoring systems that are all like pretty busted, in my opinion. They're like <laughs> they're like a little fifty grand though, fifty grand. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I always prefer to do these things at least partially customized. And so the idea is that uh, at least like in the model that I set up usually is you have a mix of what are someone's pre-qualifications. So they're like demographic score, which might be based on their title, their industry, something like that. Um, And those don't change. Those stay static. And then somebody's behavioral score, which is a measurement of their engagement, like what forms do they fill out, pages they visit, things like that. And then those things end up getting summed to sort of like whatever your current active score is. And then the engagement scores decay. So like if I visit a page a month ago, um, that score stays for a while and then goes away. So ideally your salespeople look at a ranked list of highest to lowest scores um, of their MQLs, let's say, and then they can sort of prospect in order of highest value. This has some problems on an account-based level because like you might have 10 people from a Microsoft buying committee who all have 10 points and one super fan who's got like a thousand points and you might think he's more (laughs) valuable than your uh, Microsoft team. But on an account score level, you could look at this and say like, oh, wow, Microsoft has a lot of points right now. Like these guys are pretty engaged. 
Uh, so that's from a scoring perspective, like how I usually set it up. It does require some know-how within the CRM and marketing automation to do. But the part that I think is really cool is when you have those scores, which are like quite literally scores of someone's qualification or of someone's quality, you can then pull those over into remarketing lists. So like, you know, for someone who's like running display advertising uh, or match lists, like being able to say these thousand people are our highest scored people. And then these 5,000 people are like the next tier of scoring and so mm-hmm. forth. So there's like a time with paid and scoring there as well, for sure. Yeah. I mean, being able to target those high score people directly or even create lookalikes uh, is definitely like a huge win, especially, you know, right now when a lot of traditional strategies are kind of on hold, right? So yeah, I mean, being able to see into that, it's, it's definitely a little bit beyond me just from lack of experience with working with such advanced tools. But uh, sounds like you guys have an incredible handle on that. I think a, a lot of it, uh, I know that a lot of this is like seemingly advanced. And I would say that for uh, sort of a lot of people entering into this for the first time, it sounds very complicated. I do think that in terms of where we're at with attribution in general for being able to track this kind of stuff, I think that marketing is still sort of in the development phases of developing attribution. Uh, Obviously, when Google Ads was first released, uh, we were measuring conversions. But with people who are using longer sales cycles, measuring just conversions is is not nearly enough. We'll always tell clients um, or really anyone something that we preach is that if we invest money into uh, paid media without some form of attribution, that's typically going to be wasted money. We can't go spending a quarter million of a client's budget with a one-year sales cycle, and then after a year goes by of spending that money on you know monthly or quarterly basis, not being able to tell them how many you know leads and opportunities and stuff that that's converted into. I do agree with what Andrew said that uh, sort of what he, zero to one is uh, more of a vital step than one to two. Mm-hmm. I do think that like. What I'm hoping, if we're looking like five to 10 years in the future in terms of how we attribute things in in marketing in general, is that we're not really debating about whether to do first touch and last touch, but that we've developed more elaborate models that do take multi-touch into account. Uh, What we've seen with leads and what we know about uh, nurturing leads through long sales cycles is that they often have like tens or hundreds of touches between organic and paid and everything. And so there are a lot of things to give credit to. How we develop an algorithm to be able to track that and give the proper amount of credit is still sort of up in the air. I hope is that in in the future, we're talking less about like, oh, you want to run a campaign on X? Let's set up conversion tracking. But more that uh, we're we're talking about a a part of the basic setup being uh, implementing that full scale attribution for anyone on any platform. I think that would be a really cool tool to see. I just I just don't really think that we're there yet. So we do have to use a lot of these sort of like third-party vendors and softwares and stuff like that to be able to uh, strategically craft this together to be able to show it to our clients. Yeah, the industry always changing. I mean, I'm not going to get into this topic, but I think because it's just a whole other can of worms, maybe another episode of this. But uh, as we transition more and more towards like a universal tracking ID for all devices, all users, um, I mean, privacy aside, like whatever happens there <laughs> happens there. But if there is a solution that comes into place that still respects the privacies of users, we may see that kind of leap from zero to two all the time instead of just zero to one is the 
the starting point. So yeah, I'm, I'm definitely like excited about uh, the future with what's going to happen with uh, cookies, IP device IDs, even like desktop device IDs. I heard that might be a thing. Who knows though? Um, but yeah, I mean, we touched on a lot. Uh, this has been fantastic uh, from COVID to, you know, ABM, funnel strategies, the legendary soccer field analogy, and then MarTech to close it out. I'm super happy with this, guys, and I really appreciate you guys jumping on. Uh, I know you guys have lots of clients to get back to, so uh, I guess we can just call it a day. Yeah, I appreciate you having us here. Thanks so much, Alex. I appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you very much for tuning into this episode today. If you like what you heard, it would mean a world to us if you do these three things. Subscribe to the show and leave us a review. If you're listening to this and know someone who would find this episode valuable, please share it with them. And finally, please share it on LinkedIn. If you have questions or feedback or would love to learn how agencies or brands work with StackItApp, find us at www.stackitapp.com. Thanks for listening and I'll see you next time.